It is good to see you all. If we have not met yet, hello. My name is Pastor Johnny, lead pastor here at Southside Baptist Church. Thankful that you are here and with us. We have been walking through a study of the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, uh, the book itself. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible there, that would be great. Uh, we find ourselves in our second week of chapter 4. So we are two weeks into chapter 4. We're going to wrap up, Lord willing, chapter 4 next week jumping into a fun topic in chapter 5. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you haven't read ahead. And so uh, I would encourage you uh, to read ahead and uh, prepare your hearts and your minds for what is coming uh, in the Word. Now, again, we find ourselves uh, here in the Word of the Lord, hearing from Paul as he writes to the Corinthian Christians. And Paul is still challenging the Corinthian Christians really to look to their own holiness, not only the corporate holiness as the gathered body of believers, but also their individual personal holiness as they seek to grow in their faith. And again, what we will see today is Paul is going to continue to challenge the Corinthian Christians uh, in their walk and in their growth in holiness because he is seeking to root out their own sin of pride. Now, as we have already stated over the past few weeks, the Corinthian Christians have broken themselves into factions based upon their favorite leader, or better yet, their favorite pastor. And so what they have done is they've now placed more emphasis on one particular pastor over the other. Remember, there were some that followed Paul, some that followed Apollos, and then there were others that followed Peter. And so Paul's been working to, to put an end to all these uh, factions. But ultimately, what we've been seeing the Corinthian Christians do is they've literally placed more emphasis over one leader over the other in order to gain some sort of prominence for themselves or better yet some sort of prestige for themselves and so the Corinthian Christians literally in this moment were sitting in judgment over Paul and over Apollos and over Peter based upon their style and their delivery and as we said before Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians that again substance matters more than style so by this particular point in our text that we're going to read together this morning, um, uh, Paul has already shared by this point with the people who they now are in Jesus Christ. He's also told them about the message that matters, the message that the world called foolishness, to which Paul says, no, this is a message of wisdom. He has shared with the Corinthian Christians by this point the call to make Christ known and has called them to preach Christ crucified, and then he has gone on to share with them the definition of true wisdom. Not wisdom based upon how the world defines it, but rather wisdom according to the word itself. So this morning, Paul's now going to turn his attention again to the Corinthian Christians, again to their issue and their sin of pride, and he's going to simply state a very simple truth for them, and it's a truth that I believe that we need to hear today, and it's literally found in verse 6 of our text today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. In other words, what Paul says to the Corinthian Christians this morning is this, that path that you were thinking about taking, that particular plan that you were following, that, that, that plan that you now believe is right, yeah, don't go that way. 
Now, when I think about those particular words, I'm, I'm really taken back to my childhood growing up uh, in Atlanta. Uh, in Atlanta, we did not have theme parks like you guys have here. Uh, you guys have Busch Gardens. You guys have Disney and Universal and Legoland. And, and now Peppa the Pig has her own theme park. Um, I'm waiting on PJ Masks to get their own theme park. Uh, I really think, I know Mario's got a thing at Universal. I think Mario deserves way more than just a, a section. I think he deserves it. Anyway, another conversation for another day. Either way, growing up in Atlanta, what we had was this wonderful magical place called Six Flags. And some of y'all have been there. Have you been to the one in Atlanta? Oh, praise be to God, you all survived. This is good. Okay, so I'm not alone in that. I feel like they should have made a sign off on a waiver or something. But anyway, I remember being at Six Flags as a child, and I don't know about you, but maybe as a kid when you went to a theme park, do you remember what your first ride was? Okay, some of you really know that. That's pretty impressive. Okay, I think back to my first ride, and here's the reality about my first ride at a theme park. I can still remember it to this day. I remember what it felt like, what it smelled like. And I want to go ahead and tell you that every time I went back to Six Flags, I made sure, even as an adult, that I still could ride this ride. I don't care if there was a height requirement. I was going to ride the ride no matter what. Now, thanks be to God, it did not have a height requirement. Now, the ride that I'm thinking of is a ride that they called Monster Plantation. This was literally a ride that you rode in a boat on water through a house. Now, to give you an idea of what it's like, if you've ever been to Disney World and ridden Pirates of the Caribbean, it's almost that same concept, except it's monsters. And I remember riding through this ride, and they have all these fun, weird creatures. They're all singing to you. It kind of has a, a Br'er Rabbit-type feel to it. And about halfway through the ride, you get to this point where the monster sheriff is at his police car, and he has a sign that says, go this way. And he starts telling you, don't go that way. Go this way. Don't go that way. You're not going to like that way. And so you literally see paths, and there's a, there's a boat that's not moving the direction you're supposed to go, and all of a sudden the track takes you in the direction you're not supposed to go. And what happens from there is darkness, scarier fuzzy creatures, uh, none of them sing, very unpleasant, lots of up and downs on this part of the ride. And the good news is, if you've ridden that ride, you eventually make it back. Okay? But here's what's interesting to me about that ride is literally as the sheriff is saying to you, don't go that way. Paul is saying the same thing to the Corinthian Christians. You see, in keeping them focused on their own personal holiness and calling them to, to move away from their own pride, to move away from their, their own sins, Paul is now teaching the church there is a better path. There is a better way to go. So let's go ahead and, and jump into our text and, and see what this better way is and what it is that Paul now calls the church to avoid when he says, don't go that way. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join with me. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are going to begin reading in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And once you have found your place in the Word of God, if you can and you're able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Now this is Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? 
If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And, 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 would that you, or excuse me, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for, the sake, for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and, and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, just to set the scene for you, Paul is literally circling back around to talking about his ministry and ultimately talking now about the ministry of Apollos in order to keep the Corinthian Christians pride in check. So what Paul is going to do in our text, and you probably already picked up on this as we were reading it, is Paul is going to literally mix together uh, some rhetorical questions along with some sarcasm in order to remind the church that everything that we have been given, everything that we have now received is a gift from God, including the leaders who have now been sent to the Corinthian Christians. Now Paul is going to compare his situation of following faithfully, of following hard after Jesus Christ to that of the world that ultimately seeks a better way to go, or better yet, an easier way to go, a way that leads to prestige and wisdom and honor. And in doing this comparison, the Corinthian Christians will and hopefully should realize that what it is that they're seeking after, this easier way in their own pride, is actually the wrong thing to seek. And so Paul is going to tell the Corinthian Christians that if you are pursuing Jesus Christ, then in this present age, you can expect less prestige. You can expect more hardships. You can expect more persecution because you, according to Paul, are the scum to the world. And as we see in our text, Paul is going to say, listen, you're making a choice. And the path that you are on Corinthian Christians, the the path that you have chosen, this path of ease, this path that is based upon your own pride, yeah, don't go that way. Because again, that path will only lead to ruin. So let's see together again what it is that Paul says to not follow after versus what it is that he ultimately tells the church that they are now called to pursue together as Corinthian Christians. So first I want us to see this in verses 6 and 7. Paul says this, do not follow pride. Look with me again, verse 6. Paul says, and I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
Notice how Paul opens here by reminding the Corinthian Christians of why they were able to have both Paul and Apollos share in their ministry together with the Corinthian Christians. He says, again, it was for your benefit. Now, we've already heard Paul write about this before, but now Paul is coming back to it again so that they learn from these men, seeing that these men were sent for their benefit, and ultimately these men were sent to them so that the Corinthian Christians would not go beyond what is written. Now, when Paul talks about what is written, he's speaking specifically of what is taught in the Old Testament. He's saying to the Corinthian Christians, remember what it is that the Old Testament teaches. Remember what it is that I taught you or what it is that Apollos taught you or what it is that that Peter taught you according to the Old Testament about issues of arrogance. Remember what the Old Testament says to you about pride itself. And remember what the Old Testament teaches us about who is truly in charge. Now Paul says to Remember these things and not go beyond what is written so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Again, Paul's concern for the Corinthian Christians is to remind them not to follow after their own pride. Now again, the reasoning for this is because the Corinthian Christians had already become subject to their own pride by the way they were assessing the style and the quality of both Paul and Apollos at this particular point in their ministries. Now, pay attention to what happens next because then we get to verse 7 and we see Paul beginning to use rhetorical questions in order to hold the Corinthian Christians accountable to their own pride and to their own arrogance. He literally asks them three questions, one building upon the other. He says, for who sees anything different in you? In other words, Paul is asking this question, what makes you so different? Better yet, what makes you superior to others like you? To which the obvious answer for the Corinthian Christians should have been nothing. We are no different. He then asked them a second question. What do you have that you did not receive? Again, the answer for the Corinthian Christians should have been nothing. For everything that they had received was an act of the grace of God at work in their lives. Paul then asks a third question. He says, and if you received it, the it being God's grace then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul literally says at this point, why are you boasting in something that you did not create? Why are you boasting in something that that wasn't given to you simply based upon your own goodness, or better yet, your own merit? Rather, the the it that we have been given, things like wisdom itself from the word, things like the, the teachers that the Lord has gifted you with as Corinthian Christians, the church itself was given to you by the grace of God. You see, Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to realize that in in following their own pride, they were now blind to the reality of what was taking place all around them. And so Paul says to them, listen, since since all that we have been given is an act of grace from God, we really have no reason to brag upon ourselves or better yet to, to brag upon our own merit. We have no reason to boast at this point. 
You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we pursue pride, when we begin to boast in our own selves, when we begin to boast in our our own way of doing things, when arrogance is present, then what happens is we quickly forget that everything that we have been given to us is a true gift of God. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, please do not for a second lose sight of the fact that what you have is not your own doing. Don't lose sight of the fact that as a church, we gather on Sunday mornings. Why? Because of the grace of God. I hope you're not here because you you feel like you have to be here. No, you're, you're here because of the grace of God at work in your lives. We have the opportunity to gather on Sunday nights, not because we have to. We get to gather for the purpose of praying to our great God who who hears us in our prayers. And we get to do that because of the grace of God that is at work in our lives. We get to gather together in gospel communities throughout the week, not because we, we have to or because the pastor said or the elders said that this is what we're supposed to do. No, we get to do these things because of the grace of God that is in our lives. Our men gather two uh, Thursdays out of every month at 6 a.m. An hour that many of us would say, the Lord is still busy with other people. What are we doing? But we get to gather as men around a, a beautiful book and the word itself. That book is, by the way, The Wonderful Works of God, Herman Bobby. You should read it. But we get to do that because of the grace of God at work in our lives. Our ladies gather first Fridays of every month, not because they have to, Not because Aaron and some of the other ladies thought it would be a cool idea. No, they do it because of the grace of God in our lives. Now, why do I say that to you? Because here's the reality. We live in a society today in pride that tells us we do not have to be a part of the local church. And what I am telling you and what Paul is saying is this. That is pride. Rather, what you should see is that we get to gather together, not because we have to, not because of some sort of weird obligation, but but we get to do this because of the grace of God that is upon our lives. So when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you begin to doubt whether or not you should be together with the body of believers, you should stop for a moment and say, wait a minute, I don't have to do this. I get to do it because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And so we should do it with all joy. But here's what happens to us. In our own pride and our own arrogance and seeking after our own desires and seeking after all the things that we believe that will fulfill us beyond the church, beyond the word, beyond the Lord, we quickly become blinded. And we forget everything that has been given to us as a true gift of God. And Paul says, listen, Corinthian Christians, do not go that way. All that you have, hallelujah, you have because of Jesus Christ. Your home, you have it because of Christ. Your children, because of Christ. Your jobs, because of Christ. Your work, because of Christ. Your ability to worship, because of Jesus Christ. Your faith family that supports you, cares for you, and nurtures you, you have because of Jesus Christ. And guess what? The very root of that, your salvation itself, yeah, you have that because of Jesus Christ. To God be the glory for what he has given to us. We've got to stop taking for granted in pride and in arrogance what it is that God in his grace has given to us. 
I love what John Calvin says about this point. He says it this way. He says, God does not confer so much upon anyone as to elevate him to the place of the head, but rather distributes his gifts in such a manner that God alone is glorified in all things. So I want to ask us this morning, man, when good things happen around us, who gets the credit? Do we take all the credit ourselves? Look at us. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've built. Look at what we have. Or does God get the glory with this? Maybe a, another question we should ask ourselves is when good things are happening around us and we have, we have opportunities to celebrate, we have opportunities to praise, do we praise God for what he's doing? Do we praise God for what he is building up? Or, or, or in our, our pride, in our own arrogance, do we continue to find the negative things? Do we, do we praise God for what he's doing in this place? Or, or are we so blinded by our own pride and our arrogance that we, that we allow ourselves to continue to be blinded into complaining and therefore riding the fence when the reality is God said, no, get in the field. Church, Paul says to us, don't go that way. Do not follow pride. Paul moves on from there in verses 8 through 10. And he says, not only should you not follow pride, but also this, do not follow worldliness. Look with me again, verse 8. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And and with that, you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Now, when you read this particular part of the passage, you almost get the point that Paul is literally saying, really, church, you are better than all of this. I mean, this honestly might be one of the best uses of sarcasm that we have ever seen. Now, as a note, I want to say this. Children, if you're hearing this today, husbands, dads, if you're hearing this today, just because sarcasm is in the Bible does not mean you can now use that sarcasm against your spouse. Okay? Don't go home today and say, hey, pastor mentioned Paul used sarcasm. Ergo, I'm going to use sarcasm in every area of my life. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Your spouse is going to remind you of the time that Jesus flipped tables. And you might be the recipient of said table. Okay? Moderation, people, it matters, right? Now, looking at the text, Paul's going to use sarcasm here in order to accuse and ultimately find guilty the Corinthian Christians in their love for worldliness. Paul's literally going to point out that the Corinthian Christians were in love with ideas that that ultimately originated in a pagan society and were were rooted in a pagan worldview. Verse 8. He says phrases like this, you have all that you want. You have become rich. You have become kings. Paul's now pointing to the fact that apart from the word of God and apart from the teaching of the word of God, the Corinthian Christians now believed that they were already spiritually full based upon what they had already found on their own accord. So you see, the Corinthian Christians, they weren't just ready to be sent out into the world. They already believed and thought that they ruled the world. 
because they believed that they were better than anyone and everyone else. And so in this moment, Paul literally sarcastically looks at them and says, look at you. You guys have made it. I mean, you did it. You have literally found the one way to rule and the one way to worship apart from anything that the Word of God now teaches. You have found the one way to glory apart from Jesus Christ. Again, this was not some sort of affirmation to what the Corinthian Christians had done. No, this was, this was sarcasm, okay? This is kind of like, if you guys remember, I don't know, a lot of you guys text, I can tell because you text me a lot, but a lot of you guys like to send videos and memes. It kind of reminds me of that, that meme that went around for a while with Willy Wonka resting his, his head on his chin and going, so you think you're the smartest person in the world? Please tell me more about that. And he's got a smile on his face. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that one? And you can enter in any kind of caption that you want. Literally, Paul is saying that same thing. He's saying, so you have figured it out apart from Christ. Really? Tell me more. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He says this. He says, man, really, I wish you guys did reign. I wish you did reign because here's the reality. If you reigned, that means we could reign with you and life as a leader, life as a Christian would be so much easier for us if you guys were in charge. And then here's what Paul does. You get to verse 9, and Paul all of a sudden hits the Corinthian Christians with a cold dose of reality. Verse 9, he says this, For for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as, and pay attention, as last of all, like men sentenced to death. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now notice here how Paul is using language that would paint an image of a triumphant processional. So there's this image in mind of of generals and commanders returning home from battle and they were paraded through the city streets and they showed off all the the treasures that they had won in the midst of battle. They had shown all the, the captives and the slaves that they had now collected in order to show off just how great their victory was. And so ultimately this sounds really good until you realize that the Christian in this image is actually not the victor. The Christian is the captive. Paul says, listen, you're going to know suffering. You're going to fight battles. You're going to lose battles. But good news, in the end, praise be to God, we know how the story ends. We win because Jesus Christ has ultimately won. However, according to the standards of this world, The world believes in its own wisdom, in its folly and error that we as believers have lost. You see, Paul says this, for the the Christian seeking triumph based upon worldliness, for the Christian seeking victory based upon the standard and the definitions of this world, you have now joined with the side of the persecutors and you are continually walking in worldliness in the midst of your pride. And yeah, don't go that way. Coming back to the text, Paul then compares his situation to, to that of the Corinthian Christians who are steeped in their pride, who, who have literally believed they have found a better way. They are following a worldly way. He says this in verse 10, phrases like, well, we, are, we are fools, but you are wise. 
We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul literally says, listen, your version of Christianity, a Christianity that is defined by the terms of the world and not defined by the the word of God itself. Yes, that Christianity is easy. And according to the world, your version of Christianity will prevail. However, for Paul, I guess for Apollos as well, since he mentions him in verse 6, Those who are faithful, those who cling to the word, those who stand upon truth, in the world, they're not popular. In the world, what they believe is considered foolishness. They may never have status. They may always be seen as weak. But in the end, they truly will be victorious because they know Jesus. They know that which is true. So you see, the Corinthian Christians, they were claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, but here's what they were doing. They were associating with those who did not belong to God. So they believed that what they were doing was right. They believed that what they were doing was just enough. And so Paul says, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not get caught up in worldliness. As we stated last week, we are in no position to create our own brand of Christianity. We have a book for that. There is a standard that has been given to us by the grace of God, and it's found in the Word of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we being faithful to the call of God or in our own pride, in our own worldliness, in our own small victories, do we really believe that we are doing just enough and doing just enough is good enough? I mean, think about that for a moment. We have been given the word of God. We, we now know how to live. We know how to share. We know how to serve. We know how to equip. None of us can say at this point, we didn't know. So why are we not doing the very thing that the Word of God calls us to do? I mean, think about that for a moment. You know, we read in the Gospels that there's a moment where Jesus tells the apostles. He said, people will come to me and say, Teacher, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do these things in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? And Jesus says, and I will say to them, depart from me, you doers of wickedness, for I never knew you. Jesus teaches us in this moment that there are people walking this world and they are walking this world today and they believe that they are Christians, but the reality is that they are not because they never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. We can take that one step further. There is going to come a day where all of us, whether you're a believer or not, will stand before a holy God in judgment. And what scares me is on that day when we see that everything that we have believed has been true, everything that we have believed is right, everything that we believe is correct, there it is before us, and it's way bigger than we could ever imagine. What scares me is on that day, how many Christians are going to look upon the face of the Lord and say this, man, I wish I would have done more. 
And you may think to yourself, no, I won't have that day. Okay, think again, because here's the reality. When you go on vacation and you visit a place for the first time, what do you do when you come home? Hey, the next time we go here, let's plan to do this, this, and this, and we'll be more efficient. Why do you do that? Because you put your eyes on it. Now you know. How many of us go through life and all of a sudden we, we find out we've got a, a diagnosis that we didn't know we had before. And so what does that do? It alters everything for us. All of a sudden we start finding ourselves eating healthier, going, getting more rest, getting out and exercising a little bit more. We find ourselves being more intentional about the time we spend with people. And why do we do it? It's because of what we know. Well, if that's true of vacations and, and, and medical conditions, why would that not also be true of Jesus Christ? And I'm going to tell you again, Paul says it in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Don't find yourself before the throne saying, man, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this day was coming and I wish I would have done more. You see, for the Corinthian Christians, they were seeking a status that was based upon appearance. They were thinking to themselves that they were doing just enough and, and the other things that they had been called to do were, were more like guidelines. They were kind of irrelevant. And Paul says this to them, no. Thinking that way and living that way, that's how the world lives. We have a standard. So how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to serve. And, and, and more on this in just a moment. Paul's actually going to get into this in just a moment. But before we move away from, from this particular point on worldliness, I want you to hear what one particular scholar said about it. He said this. He says, when it comes to worldliness, the service of God is perfect freedom. And the service of our neighbor is the perfect selflessness. In other words, are you looking for freedom today? Look no further than Jesus Christ. Are you looking for freedom today? Are you looking to remove your own selfishness? Then drop the ways of the world and what the world calls victorious and faithfully serve Jesus right where he has you. Paul then moves on from there. And we get to verses, uh, verse 11 here. And Paul says, listen, do not follow pride. Do not follow worldliness. And in grace, by God's grace, here's what Paul does. He, he gives us a moment of grace and he says, let me tell you what you should follow. And again, it's simple. He says this, follow Jesus. Follow Christ. Look, verse 11. He says, through the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Notice how Paul now moves from where not to go to now pointing the Corinthian Christians in the right direction. He says, listen, you're going to do anything, go to Jesus. Now, he doesn't just say that directly, but, but notice in the text, Paul's not really giving us some sort of list of his sufferings so that we can have a pity party for Paul or so that he can elevate his own status based upon his suffering. Rather, what Paul is doing is he's drawing a comparison to those who are faithful in Christ, to those who are dealing with persecution, to that of the life that was lived by Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted, which means beaten repeatedly, and we are homeless. 
Paul's ministry and call mirrored that of the life of Jesus Christ. So for the sake of Christ, Paul says, these things happened. And yet, let's not miss Paul's point. Because the word of God tells us these things are going to happen. Jesus himself tells us we can expect this as believers. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, like Christ, it doesn't mean all of a sudden all of us need to go sell our homes now and just live here on the campus, although that might do our campus some good, I'm going to be honest. No, what, what Paul is saying here is this. Look, you're going you're to quickly realize that being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, man, this world is not your home. This world is never going to be your home. You're, you're, you're homeless. You're just kind of passing through. You're probably never going to be as comfortable as you desire to be, as comfortable as you hope to be in this place because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus also says in John chapter 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You see, like Jesus Christ, we're going to be poor. Like Christ, we, 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 may, begin to, we may begin to starve. Like Paul, we may, we may be starved, and not just, not just a, from a loss of food because of our faith, but, but we may lose relationships and starve for, for relationships. And we're going to lose them because of our faith. Because of what we believe, we may see opportunities pass right by us because we declare ourselves to be Christians. And let's not forget, it was Jesus Christ who was beaten and crucified. And so Paul says, yeah, that could happen to you as well. And the reality is, if it happened to our Savior and our Lord, then what makes you think for a second that you could possibly escape it? No one said it would ever be easy. As a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, Paul tells his story. He went hungry. He was left in the cold. He was imprisoned. He was beaten all for his faith. He was shipwrecked. He was homeless. And if you read the rest of Acts, we know that Paul will be killed for his faith. He was martyred. And yet it's Paul who says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My brothers and sisters, did you just hear what Paul said about his own ministry? He says, my only goal in life is to make much of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what it will cost me. So I want to ask you today, as a Christian, can you faithfully say that same thing? Can you faithfully say today that no matter what it costs me, it is worth it? for knowing the grace and the goodness and the glory that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. So notice how Paul responds, coming back to our passage in verses 12 and 13. Paul says that we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. 
Paul says, not if the curses come, but when the curses come, we offer blessings. Paul says, not if the mistreatment happens, but rather when the mistreatment happens, we respond with endurance and we keep moving forward for the cause of Jesus Christ. Why would he say that? Because as Christians in, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, as, as a member of the, the church at Corinth, even as a, a member today, we are considered a danger to society. So what does society do? In Paul's day, it tried to stop them. But yet, everything they threw at Paul would not stop him from declaring the goodness of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Along with the faithful, Paul pressed on in making Christ known, living like Christ, following the example of Christ, and making sure that any person they came in contact with knew exactly who they were. And man, it's got to make you wonder for just a moment as believers today. How do we respond when society tries to stop us? How do we respond when, when, when society tries to, to downplay our Christianity? Are, are we the type of Christians where we continue to press on or do we cower and compromise what it is that we now believe? And then pay attention to our text because Paul's going to close by going one step further in order to break the pride and the worldliness of the Corinthian Christians. I, mean, I, try to, I try to imagine myself what it must have been like in the room at this point. I'd imagine there were some people that were kind of angry, some people who were like, no, this is not me. I imagine by this point, by the, but yeah, I know they didn't have chapters in, but by this point in the letter, I imagine there were some of the believers in the room that were just broken. And then they're about to hear this from Paul, verse 13. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Again, do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying that when it comes to faithfulness and following Jesus Christ in this society, the world believes and thinks and treats Christians as if they were garbage. And not just any garbage, just kind of like the stuff in our homes that gets put in a corner and just collects dust, never to be seen or heard from again for years. No, we're talking about the stuff that gets tossed out and burned. Paul says, yeah, follow after Jesus faithfully and this world's going to believe you're rubbish. Now again, Paul's not looking for some sort of pity party for his own life. But rather what he is doing in this moment is he's pointing to Corinthian Christians to what it is that they can now expect when they lay aside their pride, turn from their worldliness, and ultimately follow Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. But again, pay attention because Paul doesn't just stop there. He says you're going to be slandered. In other words, people are going to lie about you. And let me say to you, some of, some of these people may be sitting in the room with you. I mean, they literally, that's what Paul was speaking to when he was talking to the Corinthian Christians. People in this room are going to slander you. They're going to lie to you. They're going to lie about you. Now, I got to be honest with you for a second because slander is one of those things for me. That's like fighting words for me, okay? Lying about someone is, is fighting words. This is a struggle that I have, all right? I don't often practice grace when it comes to slander, all right? Here's what I mean by that. I love you guys, but if you slander my family, them's fighting words where I'm from, okay? You slander people that I care about, like Miss Charlotte, or Miss Mary, who's back today, or Miss Loretta, 
Those are fighting words. I'm coming. You slander my friends. My friends that I care about, friends that, have, that, have, that we've broken bread with, friends that have been in my home, friends that, that love on my family, friends that I know that if something were to happen to me today, that my family would be cared for because of my friends. I'm, I'm talking about my elders in the room. I'm talking about the deacons in the room. I'm talking about a lot of you, a lot of you guys in the room that are friends. You've, you've, you've been with us. Even, even you folks that I don't know when people say something to me, those are, those are fighting words, okay? And here's how I want to treat that, okay? I want, to, I want to go to war for you. I do. I really want to. I know it's not right, but I want to. When I have two friends that are talking about each other, here's what I want to do. I don't believe this is right either. I want to put them in a dark room, throw in one pair of boxing gloves, lock the door, and say, have at it. I'll be back in 15 minutes. Notice what Paul says. Paul says you're going to be slandered. And how should we respond? He uses the word entreat. We entreat. I'm just curious. How many of you guys use the word entreat in your vernacular today? Very Really? Okay, somebody raised their hand up front. I'm questioning it. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. We're going to talk about that later. I've got questions now, sir. We entreat. You know what that word means? It means that we respond in kindness. We respond in grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in order to follow Jesus Christ faithfully, in order to, to, to go to him, we, man, we've got to turn away from our pride. We've got to turn away from our worldliness. We have to know that this world, our world that we currently live in, is not ever going to agree with us. It's going to seek to fight us. It's going to seek to tear us down. It's going to seek to destroy us. It doesn't care whether or not what it's saying is true or not. You may even have people that you know that because they're so comfortable in this world, all of a sudden they begin to stand against you because you've taken a stand on truth. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, this stuff's going to happen to you. For the Corinthian Christians, it's already happening to you. But for us today, if it's not happening to you now, it's going to happen to you at some point. And guess what? That's okay. Because you are called to follow Christ. So if you're going to do anything, practice grace, speak kindness, and then continue to stand and cling to the truth according to the word of God. And can I tell you something today? We're going to lose some battles. We're going to lose some friends. But here's the beauty of the story. You can read ahead. Read Revelation. You may not understand most of it. That's okay. But when you get to the end of Revelation, guess what? Jesus wins. And you know what he says? He says, and behold, I am coming again soon. You know what that means for us? That as followers of Jesus Christ, because Christ was victorious, we too will one day know victory. And thus, like John, we can say, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You see, as Paul has just shared with the Corinthian Christians, we when we go down the path of pride, when we become consumed with our own worldliness, then we ultimately have forgotten all that we have been given. 
We have forgotten that everything that has been given to us has been given to us by the grace of God. And so hear Paul's word of warning. Do not lose sight of what it is that has been given to you and who it is that gave it to you. And yes, opposition will come. Yes, you will face opposition in this world. Yes, the world will never come to a point where it will ever praise or commend Christians for the work that we are doing. That day will not come. That day is not coming. We will be slandered. We will be rejected. It's going to come for you if it hasn't already. It's going to come for you in some fashion, way, shape, or form. And when that day comes, remember passages like Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Remember when persecution came for Jeremiah. And he says in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 11, for the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. Brothers and sisters, we never stand alone. You do not stand alone. You will never be alone. So if we're going to pursue anything, if we're going to go after anything, if there's any path that we're going to follow, let it not be the path of pride, let it not be the path of worldliness, but rather let it be the path that that sees us us seeking and faithfully following after Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And I pray, I pray that in our own lives, wonderful and beautiful Words can be said of us. Words like what Spurgeon said of John Bunyan when he said of him, cut him and he bleeds scripture. I pray that that would be true of us today. Faith family, let's cling to the word of God. Living in a world that seeks to rip us apart, people around us seeking to rip us apart, let us be a people that when we are cut, we bleed scripture not going the way of pride, not going the way of the world, but rather going to Jesus, growing in holiness, serving faithfully, serving freely, ultimately devoted to life. That is the path we are called to follow. That is the way we are to go. Let's pray together. May your glory know.